Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. And if I told you that this podcast would contain the wisdom of Bill Gates, Quincy Jones, Lady Gaga, and Larry King, you'd probably be pretty excited. And that's exactly what you're going to get, only in a very unexpected way. That advice is going to come to you through a young guy named Alex Benayan, who left college at an early age in order to seek out these people and many others to find the definition of success. It was a wild quest he went on, and I met him about halfway through. This quest would lead to a book called The Third Door, which is going to be published this June, and I know how hard he worked on it because I mentored him through the process. I watched him write and rewrite chapters some more than a hundred times. And so I know the potential impact that this book may have on millions of people. And I also know that you're going to have a blast listening to this conversation. So if at the end of it, you're inclined to pre-order a copy on Amazon, I think you'll be glad you did. And if you're planning on going on a business adventure, let me make a recommendation. Head straight to Squarespace for a website. Squarespace enables you to make a unique and beautiful website with all the custom trimmings. Go to squarespace.com, type in the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and you'll get 10% off a domain name or a new website. Squarespace. You'll be glad you did. And boom voyage. My other sponsor, as you probably know, is ZipRecruiter. If you need to hire, there's no place better. That's because all you have to do is go to ZipRecruiter.com, type in a job description, and with a single click, you'll have qualified candidates within 24 hours. And it gets even better. If you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, you'll be able to put out your job description and get those qualified candidates for free. I don't know how it can get any better than that. Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. Our guest today is the author of a book that will soon make an appearance. His name is Alex Benayan. Ding, 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 ding. I'm supposed to wait till I get done. <laughs> I thought that was my cue. All right. Take it from Alex Benayan. <laughs> Let's try it again. Introducing the author of the soon-to-be-published The Third Door, Alex Benayan. Ding, 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 ding. Now that is what I call a good revision. <laughs> you know, I like to jump the trigger sometimes and... 
It's not out of the ordinary. So we are sitting in a storage closet that Alex carved out for himself when he was a freshman at USC. Yep, right after my freshman year is when I first moved into the storage closet. And I'm going to let you just take over this story from there uh, because it's an amazing experience uh, what Alex went through. It lasted about seven years, Mm -hmm. and it started with a college freshman looking up at his ceiling not knowing where to go, and it ended seven years later with this galley in front of me. The book comes out in early June, The Third Door. And so, Alex, why don't you explain how all this came about? So, like you said, seven years ago, I was going through a life crisis. I was 18, like you said, a freshman in college, And just as you said, spending every day lying on my dorm room bed, staring up at the ceiling. And to understand why I was going through that crisis, you have to understand that I'm the son of Jewish immigrants, which pretty much means I came out of the womb, my mom cradled me in her arms, and then stamped MD on my ass and sent me on my way. And, you know, this wasn't just a normal, you know, be a doctor kind of situation. This was my grandparents' dreams, my parents' expectations. So very naturally, when I was in third grade, I wore scrubs to school for Halloween. In high school, I went to pre-med summer camp, and I just continued checking the boxes, never once wondering whose boxes I was checking. And this was further loaded by the fact that your parents grandparents had come over from Iran in the early, or was it the middle 80s or the early 80s? 1979. 79. The Iranian revolution was in 79. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know how long it took before you got over, uh, before they got over. Uh, and so they basically had lost everything. Yeah. So my gra- if you want to go like really far back to understand the real roots of this, which I didn't understand until much later, is... You can look at my grandpa's life. He was born in Iran as a Jew, and he was the youngest of five sisters. But he did have an older brother who was the oldest sibling. When my grandpa was about three years old, his father passed away. And in Iran at that time, women couldn't work. So it was up to the eldest brother to provide for the family. Two years later, when my grandpa was five years old, that older brother passed away. So now the only male in the family is this five-year-old boy with a ton of older sisters and a mother. But the mother was very wise and wanted her son to get an education. So he went to elementary school and she just made ends meet, you know, selling her wedding ring, selling this vase, you know, just scrapping together money, just enough to, you know, put food on the table. But by the time my grandpa was about eight years old, it started to dawn on him that this wasn't a sustainable situation. So he just opened the newspaper one day and saw there was an advertisement 
from the Iranian government saying they needed paint thinner for some kind of government building. So my grandpa, as an eight-year-old, um, he was like eight or 10. He was still in elementary school. He was around in fourth grade. He fills out a form offering the government, he submits a bid offering paint thinner. And because he's, I think, like eight or 10 years old, he gives such a low bid and the government doesn't know how old he is. They're like, oh, yeah, we're definitely going with this with this vendor. And he goes, oh, shit, now I need to find some paint thinner. You know, not a problem. He goes out and finds, um, you know, like a, a family friend in the bazaar who has paint thinner. He gets the paint thinner at a good price, gives it to the government, makes some money, and, you know, he feels on top of the world. Eight years old. Eight years old, you know, goes, runs home, gives the money to his mother. She's so proud of him. A couple weeks later, he's in a geometry class, and the police show up. And they pull him out of class and say, the paint thinner you gave us was expired. And if you don't get us a new paint thinner, you're going to jail. <laughs> oh, man. You know, welcome to the Middle East. So my grandpa goes to this family friend and says, hey, the paint thinner you gave me was expired. And he goes, you should have checked the expiration date. Doesn't help him. So my grandpa has to take the profits he made. He ends up going to find other paint thinners. You have to understand, this is an eight-year-old Jewish boy in the Iranian bazaar. Um, he ends up finding the paint thinner, gives it to the government, and still manages to get a tiny bit of profit, enough to buy a bag of pistachios. And that started my grandpa's journey. And he worked really hard building his business. And in the meantime... He knew that education was the key to not just be an entrepreneur, but to really have a company thrive. So he got his doctorate in chemistry. And by the time he was 50, he had built a really big company in Iran and had a, one of the tallest buildings in the, in the city's capital. But right around then was the Islamic Revolution. And one day the Revolutionary Guard broke the windows of his office building and the ground floor went up all the staircases and surrounded my grandpa's office on the top floor of the building and put a bag over his head and took him to what he soon found out was a death camp where you know prisoners were kept and every day one would be called and he would hear gunfire. So... Through a miracle, he finds a way to escape this death camp, comes back to America, and has to do what he did at eight years old all over again, build a life from scratch. Did you know all of this when you were a freshman staring up at your ceiling? This is what I've learned about my family. I, you know, I have an amazing family, but they like to use a lot of code words. So when I was a kid or even a teenager, there would be, you know, you look at family photo albums and there would be like a year or two where my grandpa wasn't in family photos. What happened to grandpa? And I would say what happened to grandpa and they would say, to Danishkabude, which means he was at the university. <laughs> oh, man. And that gives you an insight to my family, you know? Um, and, and so all this is sitting in your past 
And, and, I, and I don't know this. You don't know that. And you don't know how loaded it is. When they say be a doctor, it means- It wasn't be a doctor. It was you are going to be a doctor. There's a difference. And, and underneath that is being a doctor will never be, nobody can ever take that away from you. Right. What my grandma, grandma used to always tell me when I was growing up is in a revolution, someone can take your money, they can take your house- but they can't take away what you know. And if you can save people's lives, you can do that anywhere. And that was pretty good logic to me. You know, I liked the idea of helping people. You know, my uncle was a doctor. You know, it made my family proud and it looked like a fun job. So to me, why not? And as a kid, you know, you do what you're rewarded. So I'd wear scrubs to school for Halloween and at, you know, family dinner, people would hold up the pictures, look at Alex. So to me... All of this is very important to understand why I'm going through this life crisis freshman year of college. Because when I'm in those biology classes, taking my pre-med classes, and I'm seeing all the kids sitting next to me going 100 miles an hour with this drive, I'm realizing it's a huge red flag that something's wrong. How come when I lived at home with my parents... I walked around with my scrubs and I walked around saying I was going to be a doctor. But the second I'm actually in these pre-med classes, I can't crack open the book. Yet all the kids around me are doing it with the ferociousness that, you know, Kobe treats going to the gym or to the practice courts. So that's where the staring at the ceiling crisis comes in. And what, what am I going to do now? Or how am I going to go back and tell my parents and my grandparents. Oh my God. I came to college looking for answers, but all I got were more questions. You know, what do I actually want to major in? What am I interested in? What am I going to do with my life? And if anybody's gone through the, what am I going to do with my life crisis? You know that it is all consuming. It's what you think about in the shower. It's what you think about before you go to bed. And the worst part about it for me was I couldn't tell my family I was going through it. So I had to live this double life where my mom would call and I would say, oh, things are great. <laughs> and then secretly I'll be, you know, in my dorm room going through business books and biographies and looking for answers to these questions. Well, what I was the big question that you had? The big question to me, what I want to do with my life was the gateway, but it wasn't the big question. That led me to a bigger question of, okay. Maybe I don't know exactly what I want to do with my life, but I know my interests. You know, I like business. I like technology. I like entertainment. So, you know, how did all these people who I look up to, how did they break through when they were my age? Bill Gates, at some point in his life, was an unknown college student selling software out of his dorm room. Steven Spielberg, at some point in his life, had no credentials to his name, yet somehow he became the youngest director in Hollywood history. These are the things they don't teach you in class. So my big question was, when no one would take their meetings, when no one would answer their calls, how did these people find a way to break through and launch their careers? And I assumed there had to be a book with an answer to this question. You know, there's thousands, if not millions of books written over human history. There had to be something. So that's how I had books and books and books piled up in my dorm room. But eventually I was left empty-handed. Because the answer to the question was not in any of those books. Not only was it not in any of those books, the biographies would just skip over that 
time in their lives, but that's all I cared about, you know? You read Forbes magazine and it talks about how Bill Gates is giving away his billions. I want to know how he made his first thousand dollars. <laughs> You know, forget about billions. I can't even, you know, buy Chipotle down the street. So I want to know how Bill Gates sold his first piece of software. I want to know how Lady Gaga got a record deal when nobody knew her name. So that's what really sparked this seven-year quest. And I thought, Cal, you know, how hard could it be? Let me just call Bill Gates, interview him over the summer. <laughs> you know, once Bill says yes, I can interview everyone else. And by the end of three months... I'll be done. You know, fast forward seven years later, and I'm just getting to the end of it. <laughs> well, the funny thing is I can remember meeting you, and I think you were about three years in. Uh, I met you, yep, just about three years into the journey. And I asked you where you're at, and you told me you'd done a few interviews, and you said... And the book will be done in six months. <laughs> so even after three years, you still didn't understand what it what it was going to take. Because I remember the first piece of advice I gave you was call up your publisher and tell your publisher you need like a year and a half extension. You know, I've thought a lot about this because you and I have joked about that moment. And it wasn't a moment. This That conversation happened about 10 times. Yeah, because you didn't believe me. You're saying, no, no, six months, Cal. Don't worry. So, so uh, yeah, I've thought about it. And I don't know if the reason I told you, no, 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 Cal, it'll take six months, was because I actually believed it or subconsciously. And again, I don't know what the answer is. But another option is subconsciously I knew that if I admitted to myself it would take five years, it would sort of fall apart. There almost was this grand delusion of, oh, we're just almost at the finish line. You know, it's like telling a marathoner who's like not wearing any shoes, has never run a marathon before, and hasn't, you know, drank water for 10 hours. Oh, there's just a little bit more. That motivates her or him to keep going. Yeah, if you would have told me, you've still got 25 miles to go. <laughs> right. I mean, it's a cow. My feet can't take it. Um, and there's a beauty when people are starting something new, and it doesn't matter what your age is. This is really about a stage in life. You know, you can be an executive who quits your company to start a new company, you can be a first time entrepreneur in your dorm room. There's a beauty in starting something new in the sense that if you don't know, what you're doing, it actually is one of your greatest assets. Naivete. Because the beauty of it is you're filled with, you're fueled by possibility. Whereas the expert is fueled by limitations. That's a good point. And, and so having that naivete, you're just taking one step after another and just getting to the next milestone and celebrating and then moving on or getting beat up even more than you thought you were going to get beat right. up and looking around and wondering. I don't know what you were wondering why you were getting beat up because you, you, you should just describe a list, the list of people that you wanted to talk to 
when you started the research for this book? So the idea, one of my first questions when I set off on this quest was, who are the most successful people? You know, because the whole idea of this book was I was going to go track down some of the world's most successful people and figure out how they launched their careers. And then that leads to the question of who are the people you're going to talk to? And I don't believe in, you know, the Forbes 100 or all these lists of algorithms. You know, I don't really believe you can quantify success in those terms. So I had a problem. Who's going to be on my list? And I did a very simple solution. I called up my childhood best friends and I told them to come meet me one night. This is the summer, you know, towards the end of my, at the end of my freshman year. And I asked my best friends, if you could build your dream university, who would be your professors? And then, you know, my friend Kevin goes, oh, by the way, listeners of this should know that Kevin is Kevin the manager. (laughs) My manager, which we'll get to in a little while. So, but this was before he was Kevin the manager. This is when he was... You know, just my best friend, Kevin, who still is my best friend, Kevin. Kevin goes, oh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg should teach us tech. And then my friend Ryan goes, oh, Warren Buffett should teach finance. You know, Maya Angelou poetry, Jane Goodall science, Lady Gaga music, Quincy Jones production. You know, the names just, it started feeling very natural when we thought about who do we want to learn from. And it was such a beautiful moment in hindsight of, young people not having any inhibitions and creating the world they want to live in. And then I naively just wrote down all the names, put them on a note card, put them in my wallet. And I was like, all right, guys, I'll let you know how it goes at the end of the summer. (laughs) Thinking that I would just start calling them up one by one and get the interviews. But it was the fuel that it was possible that helped me get going. So who are some of the people? Obviously, I know them, but just for anyone listening... On, on that initial list, who did you have on it? So it's exactly... Oh, oh I'm sorry. You know what? Yeah, you just went through the whole list. Well, the whole thing is, this is the thing. There were people on the list who didn't work out the way I expected. So while some people on the list, like Bill Gates for business, yes, that was a official 45-minute interview in his office, sitting on a couch with an audio recorder, very, you know, official, which by the way, took two years to get to, but there were very unofficial interviews as well for Warren Buffett. We, me and my best friends hacked his shareholders meeting and asked our questions to Buffett in front of 30,000 people for Lady Gaga. The interview actually turned into a one week adventure with her in Austin, Texas for Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) Interview turned into me actually being threatened to have the police called on me by the event security. So there's the book is filled not only with these interviews, but also these wild adventures along the way of this journey. Well, I can remember when you first started telling me these stories, uh, it struck me that the adventures were going to be the best part of the book. not that the advice that you got from some of these people isn't great. It, it, it's some of it's amazing. In fact, when anyone reads the Pitbull chapter in this book, 
you may understand why I was so moved by it because it really made me think differently about my own life. But it's really the failures mm. and the crawling through the mud that, in my eyes, make the book really pop because we get in your shoes and we want you to succeed. And then when it's not happening, we're feeling for you and we want you to keep going. And it's we, we feel the pain. All right, I need to make a public service announcement to anybody listening to this right now. Cal, who is, as you all know, very modest and very humble, won't admit that he helped make this book possible by being my writing mentor and over the past four years, teaching me how to write and helping make this book possible. And the reason I say that right now is because when I started writing this book, I wanted it to just be, and then I strolled into Bill Gates's office. He told me this life-changing advice and you know, my life has never been the same again. And Cal, much to my, you know, 20-year-old hesitation went, whoa, 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 whoa. You're putting all the failures in this book. And I couldn't see in the beginning that there was such value in that two-year, in the stories of the two years it took to get to Bill Gates. I didn't understand the value in the eight months of rejections when I was writing letters to Warren Buffett. It was your foresight that really helped shape the vision of this book, of it not being like so many other business books, this uh, highlight reel. But it's, it's almost a documentary of what it took to make this happen in the sense that you see my grandmother crying when I leave school in order to pursue this journey. You see me cradling on the floor of a Motel 6 during one of the biggest snowstorms in Omaha history as I'm trying to get to Warren Buffett. And Cal, I got to thank you for, and again, that's the power of a mentor. The mentor's hindsight becomes the mentee's foresight. Well, I think one of the things that people don't ordinarily understand about the relationship between mentor and mentee is that quite often the mentor gets just as much back. Mm. And in my case, it actually forced me to think about everything that I'd learned over decades about interviewing writing because I had to explain it in a way that you could understand. And I don't think that I'd ever taken the time. I, the way I look at it, it's almost like when you have a grandmother who's a great cook and you're just accustomed to eating the food. There's never a recipe for your favorite dish. And if you ask grandma how to make it, she says, ah, you know, you throw a little salt here and there's never any measurements made and nobody can really replicate that. And so it forced me to actually measure a lot of the things that I'd learned so I could pass them on. Uh, but the, probably the biggest thing for me was that a whole world had emerged in, during the time that I was mm. learning all this. And it was a world of the internet, which I had basically ignored 
Ah, let's be now. If we're going to be honest again, another PSA ignored is the kindest way to put how Cal felt about the Internet. Direct quote from Cal Fussman. Twitter is my kryptonite. And now if you go to his Twitter account, you know, he has some of the best tweets out there. So tip of the hat to Cal about how much he's changed. There was I had no Twitter account until you set it up. I had no Facebook account until you set it up. I I was completely old school. We we got a little uh, noise in the background there. I'm just going to let it ride by, and then we'll pick up. That's okay. the beauty of the storage closet. The beauty of the storage closet. We'll let it pass. Who Who do you think it is? Again, one of the beauties of the storage closet is I have no idea who my neighbors are because I'm not walking around and mingling with the the people next door. I'm I'm in here normally with half the lights off and five books stacked around me just writing. We should explain that this this storage closet is where you basically wrote the whole book and went through all the revisions. So the basis of this was, you know, right after my friends and I made this dream list of people we wanted to learn from, that summer vacation, you know, I was 18 years old, I realized if I want to take this mission seriously, I need to treat it seriously. And I'm not going to do it, you know, from my bedroom. So one night, late at night, right in the beginning of summer, I grabbed my mom's keys off her nightstand went to her office, which isn't too far from where we lived. And my mom, who's an attorney, had a tiny little room attached to her office that she used to put her storage boxes and her filing cabinets. And, you know, it was covered in dust and spider webs. And, you know, the carpet was started out as white, but by that point it was like a dark gray with black dots. So it was just really nasty. But, you know, it's a storage closet. So what I did in the middle of the night is I moved all of her <laughs> filing cabinets into our home garage, cleaned it all up, vacuumed, put in a bookshelf, and that's how I really started the mission. And you started collecting the books of all these people that you were hoping right. to interview. And, of and course, as you know, the way I got the money to get these books is when I realized I needed money – to fund this mission because, you know, it costs money to travel, to go to Seattle, to interview Bill Gates and all these things. I was, you know, buried in tuition payments. I was all out of bar mitzvah cash. So I needed a way to make some quick money. So two nights before final exams, my freshman year of college, I was in the library doing what everybody does right before finals. I was on Facebook. And when I was on my Facebook newsfeed, I saw free tickets to the prices Right. And, you know, it's the longest-running game show in U.S. history, and everybody's seen bits and pieces of it, but, you know, I'd never seen a full episode before. But my first thought was, what if I go on the show and win some money to fund this mission? And, of course, you know, it was a dumb idea. I had finals in two days. You know, my mom would kill me. But it was one of those thoughts that, you know, you can't get out of your mind. So to prove to myself it was a bad idea... I opened my notebook and wrote best and worst case scenarios. I drew a line under them and I wrote worst case scenarios. Fail finals. 
get kicked out of pre-med, lose financial aid. Mom will hate me. No, mom will stop talking to me, look fat on TV. You know, there was like 20 cons. And the only pro was maybe, maybe win enough money to fund this book. And that night, I decided to do the logical thing and study. But I didn't study for finals. I studied how to hack the prices right. So I went on the show the next day and executed this ridiculous strategy and ended up winning the entire showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat, and that's how I funded this mission. And that's how, you know, months later when I was in the storage closet, you know, I had a nice amount of cash to go onto Amazon and just buy every single book on this topic. And I started lining my shelves one by one with, you know, a whole row of entrepreneurs a whole row of books about musicians, a whole row about politicians. And one by one, these books became my foundation. And over the course of this journey, I would come back to this storage closet and those books would be my greatest tools. And so when we met, I remember you telling me that Price is Right story, which is what really piqued my curiosity to see where this was all going to go. And it's kind of amazing because there probably would have been one day in our lives where we would have crossed paths. Hmm. Uh, you, you should tell the story of like where you were uh, and the time in your life you were in uh, that set up our meeting at the breakfast table with Larry King. And then I can kind of push it forward from there. So our meeting, and it was actually fun being at breakfast with you and Larry a couple of days ago and sort of telling Larry about this backstory because I don't know how much he knew about how we met. And the story starts actually with Warren Buffett, where I you know, really admire Warren Buffett, greatest investor in human history. And I thought, you know, if you watch interviews with Warren, he just looks so personable. And I just thought, well, if I just write a letter to Warren Buffett, you know, telling him about this mission, telling him that, you know, this isn't about press, this isn't about media, this is about this dream that if all these people come together for one purpose, to share their best wisdom with the next generation, Young people can do so much more. And, you know, I spend a month researching Warren, reading all his biographies and his audiobooks. And I write this really impassioned letter and I mail, I FedEx it to his office and he actually hand writes a response back. But of course, the response is no. <laughs> thank you, but no thank you. And thus, takes me on this eight-month journey of writing Warren Buffett handwritten letters and him every now and then responding with handwritten responses. But at the end of the eight months, and the whole story is another story that we can talk about later, but it ends in this beautiful train crash. (laughs) And I become completely dejected. And I leave Omaha. I come back to Los Angeles. And... I'm sitting on the sidewalk with one of my best friends, Corwin. And we're sitting on the sidewalk in front of a grocery store. You know, sandwiches in our hands. And I've just been, you know, really 
really in the gutter for the past couple weeks. And Corrin's being a good friend. He's trying to lift my spirits. And he's like, come on, man, don't you have any other interviews lined up? And I'm just like, I'm just, you know, bitter. I'm just like, you know, gritting my teeth. And he's like, come on, man, you got to get back to your routine. You got to, you, you got to, you know, jump back on the horse. And I'm just like, do you know what, man? And I'm just pissed. I'm like, even if I had another interview lined up, I'd fuck that up too. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm just venting. I'm like, you know, I, not only with Buffett did I fuck up the interview and the questions, I don't even know how to ask questions. And Corin's like, you know, being understanding. He goes, look, man, don't be so hard on yourself. Interviewing isn't a science. It's an art. It's, it's not... You know, it's not a natural thing that people can just do right away. And as we're talking about how hard it is to be a good interviewer, one of the most unexpected miracles of my entire journey happened. Right in front of us, a car pulls up with dark windows, the driver's door opens, and out walks Larry King. And it was such a surreal moment with that timing that I became paralyzed. I call it the flinch. And I didn't say anything. And Larry King walks right past us, right through the grocery store sliding windows. And Corwin, you know, jabs me with his elbow. He's like, dude, what the, what the hell, man? Why didn't you say something? And, you know, I just was so dejected. I just sort of shrugged off and I said, it's not a big deal. And he's like, dude, come on, at least go say hi. He's like 80 years old. How far could he have gotten? So almost to avoid embarrassment, I almost very reluctantly get up. I walk into this grocery store. I look around the bakery section. No Larry. I jog to the produce section. No Larry. And that's when I realize he parked in the loading zone. He's leaving any minute now. And this adrenaline kicks in and I start sprinting through the grocery store running down aisles, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry, going to the frozen food section, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry, going to the checkout counter, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry, no Larry. And that's when I want to just kick myself because it's as if God had thrown me this mana from heaven and I just said, eh, I'm not hungry. And that's when I really wanted to beat myself up. So I walk out of the grocery store. I'm staring down at my feet. And in the parking lot, I slowly lift my gaze. And right there, 20 feet in front of me, is Larry King. And all of this pent-up energy <laughs> starts combusting inside of me. And uncontrollably, I start yelling at the top of my lungs, Mr. King! And the echo in the parking lot reverberates and everyone in the parking lot turns their head around and Larry, you know, poor guy has had like quadruple bypass surgery. <laughs> he <laughs> literally jumps up in the air and looks behind him with his, you know, his eyes, eyelids stretched back, every wrinkle on his face sprung back, shoulders hunched as if like a murderer <laughs> is right behind him. Oh man. And at this point, you know, I'm, I've dug myself too deep in a hole to, to walk away now. So I just, you know, run towards him and I'm like, Mr. King, Mr. King, Mr. King, I'm Alex. I'm, you know, I'm 19 years old. I've always wanted to say hi. And, and he goes, okay, hi. And, you know, he walks away. 
And, you know, at this point now, I am even deeper in the hole. So I just keep following him. But I don't know what to say. So it's just this awkward silence. I'm following him to his car out on the sidewalk. He unlocks the car, puts his groceries in the trunk, opens the driver's door, and literally, I just go, wait, Mr. King. Can I? Can I go to breakfast with you? And I had read previously that he has breakfast at the same spot every day in L.A., and he looks at me like a lunatic, and then he looks around, and on the sidewalk, there's like a small crowd watching this <laughs> go down. <laughs> so I don't know if it was the peer pressure or what it was, but Larry just shrugs and is like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> and I go, oh, my God, thank you. Oh, my God. Uh, uh, what time? And he looks at me and slams his car door, which is the normal thing that he should have done. And But I'm not understanding any of the social cues. And I go, I'm yelling through his windshield, Mr. King, what time? <laughs> and he starts the engine. I'm, I'm now standing in front of his car, like barricading him from driving away, flailing my arms. Cal, you know those like um, inflatable men at the car dealerships, like the big giant yeah, yeah, things yeah, that yeah, are waving? Yeah. Yeah. I look like that, waving my arms in the air. Oh my Mr. God. King, what time? And he just like through the windshield, I can like read his lips. He's like, nine o'clock and just speeds away. Which now that I know the actual time breakfast starts, he invited me to come at like the final <laughs> minutes of breakfast time. <laughs> well, the thing about it is, there were, the day that you arrived, I was not there, and usually I have breakfast with him every day. And so, if you would have been able to just ask his, the questions then and left, I never would have met you. Oh wow, I've never thought about that. Wow, so. Well, so I'll fill, I'll fill the people listening in on the rest of the story so they can understand how I, I've never realized what a miracle that is in the sense that I, so I show up to breakfast the next morning and, you know, a bit embarrassed now that I can reflect on how much of a lunatic I looked the day before. Well, you're probably seeing Larry be nice to all the people who stop by and say, say hello. There is not a nicer person than him. Yeah. So the fact that he like doesn't want to talk to me helps me realize that I'm the crazy one. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We got to pause now because Kevin, the manager tells me it's time to talk about the people who make all this possible. Our sponsors. You know, I got an opportunity years ago to interview Jack Welch just after he retired as CEO of General Electric. We had a great time. He told his stories. I told some of mine. And when we were done, Jack said, how about we go to lunch? Great. So we're walking out. And just before we get through the doors, Jack said, Cal, if I were still at General Electric, there is no way you would have gotten out of this room without joining our marketing team. I was stunned. Are you nuts, Jack? Me? A marketer? Jack's expression said it all. Said, 
I've been doing this for a long time. I know where people belong. Trust me, I know how to hire. Well, we all don't have Jack Welch's to run our companies, but we do have ZipRecruiter. You can get qualified candidates within 24 hours of putting up a job post. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and get a free trial. Voila! A great hire for free! I want you to know how happy I am to do this next spot for Squarespace. Because what happened is, I went on my Twitter account and I saw a guy called the Gentleman Mystic write a tweet to me. And this tweet said, I could have used many Squarespace offers from my favorite podcasters, but I choose at Cal Fussman because I simply love his fresh perspectives, enthusiasm, and focus on sharing interesting stories. I'm excited to get scrolling on my site. Well, I'm saying, join the gentleman mystic on Squarespace, and you will have a creative experience. All you got to do is go to squarespace.com, enter the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and you will get 10% off a new domain name or website. And you're going to find yourself with an amazingly beautiful and custom-made work of art because that is what Squarespace is all about. Squarespace. Head to it right now. And we're back. You know, I show up to the breakfast table and I'm like, morning, Mr. King. And he's like, (sighs) like, you know, just shrugging me off. And, you know, I take the cue and I sit at the table next to him, just hoping that when the time is right, he'll call me over. And 10 minutes pass and then 30 minutes pass. And almost an hour later, I see him get up to leave breakfast. And I just wave my hand and I go, Mr. Mr. King. And he's like, what is it? What, what, what do you want? <laughs> and at this point now, you know, I just, I just sort of gave up and I just looked at him and I said, honestly, I just wanted some advice on how to interview people. And this slow smile spreads across his face, almost as if to say, why didn't you say so? And he smiles and, you know, puts a finger in front of my face and he goes, all right, kid. This is what young interviewers don't understand. And he goes on to tell me that people who, when they're just starting out to interview, no matter their age, and this applies really to all kinds of interviewers, they look at the people they admire. So maybe they look at Oprah Winfrey, who fills her questions with a ton of emotion, or Barbara Walters, who plans them out very strategically, or Larry, who asks, you know, the simple, straightforward questions everyone's dying to know. And he says, people who are just starting out, copy those styles, and those are the biggest mistakes you can make. Because you're focusing on what they're doing, not why they're doing it. 
And the reason why Larry and Oprah and Barbara Walters have those styles is because that's what makes them the most comfortable in their seats. And when they're comfortable, the guest is comfortable. And that's what makes for the best interview. And Larry looks up at me and he breaks eye contact for a second and almost looks up into the left at the ceiling as if he's thinking about something. And he smiles again and he looks back at me and he goes, all right, kid, tomorrow, 845, see you here. (laughs) And that's when I show up at the breakfast table. Larry calls me over, tells me to pull up a chair. And I remember the first thing he said, he's like, all right, you got, why are you even trying to interview? And I tell him about this mission and this book. And he turns to his friend, Sid, and he goes, Sid, can you believe that? 20 years old, random house book deal. I was selling milk out of cartons back in the day at that age. And he couldn't have been nicer. And that's when he goes, and this was, I think, 30 seconds into that breakfast. He goes, you know, you don't want to talk to me. And he points to a man sitting at the breakfast table in a fedora. And he said, hey, Cal, you got a minute? And that's how we first met. And that's how I would say a two-hour conversation came out of that where you told me the entire Price is Right story. And I also realized at that point that like you had no idea how long it was going to take. I hadn't read a word that you'd written, so it was hard to know if like, you could actually write. Uh, but... I guess part of it was just taking our talks one step after the next, getting to know each other. And then when I did see some of the writing, I realized that you were, you were going to need some help. That is the kindest way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it it was, well, where were you? You were when you started a freshman in college. And so that's that's kind of the level you're at a collegiate level yeah and i was actually and i know this sounds weird to someone but i take and i don't know if you have this similar experience with the books that you've written there's something cool about this about the third door in the sense that i am still learning from it in the sense that just a couple of days ago i was having a rough time with the publishing process So I went to a cafe and I opened up to the Maya Angelou chapter. So I, I turned to this book for answers, which is pretty cool in the sense that no matter what happens after the book launch, no matter how the book does, I have this almost tome, tomb, tome. What's the, what's the word? A tome is very large. Yeah. Well, it's not very large. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in my eyes, it's a tome. So, <laughs> How many pages I, is it? It's 300 pages. Um, but I have this, it's almost a, a collection of mentors and advisors I can open up to when life is getting hard for me or confusing or I don't know what steps to take. And I can go and hear what they have to say. And I was reading the Maya Angelou chapter a couple days ago. And... She said something very interesting that only now when we're done with our book do I see it actually is exactly what happened with us. She told me that 
One of the biggest reasons most people never achieve a dream is because they think not only is the dream not possible, they think they don't have the abilities to achieve those dreams. You know, you want to be a, let's say, a major singer or a best-selling author, and you might like to write, but, you know, you're not the best writer in the world. Forget even the best writer at your university. So you don't even try. And what Maya Angelou told me is she believes people aren't born with the art. You know what, actually? We have the books right here. I'm going to open it up and let Maya Angelou All right, go speak. ahead. And this is the fun thing, too, because I've worked on this for seven years. I know exactly, exactly where every page. sentence <laughs> you can ask me. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. You can ask me any sentence, and I go, oh. I'm like Rain Man for... <laughs> Page 174. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Third paragraph, second line. <laughs> the comma is right after the word when. <laughs> the chapter is called Turning Darkness into Light. I'm going to read the exact sentence that really touched me a couple days ago. So this is just a part of her answer to the question. And she says, I don't think we are born with the art, she added. You know, you have a certain eye. You can see depth and precision and color and all of that. If you have a certain ear, you can hear certain notes and harmonies. But almost everything is learned. So if you have a normal brain and maybe a little abnormal one, you can learn things. You have to trust yourself. And the way that, the way she worded that, only in hindsight after Cal, what you and I went through, did I realize She's right. Even something as difficult as writing a, you know, 300-page narrative, if you have a mentor and you trust yourself, it's possible. Now, it won't take 6 months like I thought it would, <laughs> but it's possible. Well, what what was it like going through all the rewrites? I mean, people have no idea they're going to read this book and it reads very smoothly. They're going to have no idea how much you had to rewrite. What was it like going through that where you literally had to write and rewrite chapters more than 100 times? Yeah, I think the Bill Gates chapter took 134 revisions. And I heard a great piece of advice when I was, funny enough, from my college English professor which I thought was like just a platitude, but now I'm realizing is really true. And he said, there's no such thing as good writing. There's only good editing. And another quote, again, which Maya Angelou shared in the interview, she told me, easy reading is damn hard writing. And the opposite is true too, which is easy writing is damn hard reading. <laughs> but did you fully understand in the beginning? No, I didn't understand anything. Right, <laughs> like, good. The answer to all your questions of did you understand the answer is no. Well, because to me, it felt like Mr. Miyagi would, you know, wax on, wax off. Right, but there's the thing. You were Mr. Miyagi, so you knew I would have to wax on and wax off hundreds and hundreds of times. I was just like, all right, what's a day of waxing going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and And so you're going through this process you're rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. And I remember basically telling you, look, 
I'll, I'll help you with this, but I'm not going to write a word. And you're going to have to keep rewriting till I say, okay, you can move on. And if you, and if you stop, then I'm going to have to walk. Was there ever a time where you thought, oh man, I just, I can't take this. Well, the first thing I want to do is I want to thank you. And I want to thank you because again, only at this end, at the end of this journey did I realize you gave me one of the biggest gifts of this journey. You didn't, you could have very easily given me the fish in the sense that, you know, you co-write books with a lot of people. And in the sense, you give them the fish. You taught me how to fish. And that was one of the greatest things that's happened the past seven years. So I want to thank you for that. And it took a lot of patience because God knows I wasn't a very good fisherman. (laughs) When it comes to the revisions, I've learned two things. And I think this is true for anybody who's trying to accomplish whatever their goal is. And not just a goal, but really as a dream. It doesn't matter if it's starting a company. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, getting a promotion. You're going to face obstacles. And I've learned two things because in these seven years, Forget about all the obstacles of getting the interviews. The book itself was a series of hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of obstacles in the terms of all these revisions of trying to make the book shine. And what I've learned, number one, is the thing that keeps you going is going back to remembering why you started in the first place. Because it's very easy when you are in the thick of the mud to look down at your hands and see they're bruised you know, feel the pain in your face. And that is a pretty good reason to give up because no one wants that kind of life. But when you remember why you're doing this and you remember that the pain might be temporary, but what you're trying to accomplish will help so many others. It's that larger mission that allowed me to go through the mud Because I would, every time this felt impossible, I would go back and remember why we're doing this. And I truly believe that this book and the mission as a whole will help so many people, not only on their paths, but also for generations to come. And the second thing that I've learned, which no business book talks about, is that it's okay to fucking take a break. You know, every business book I read growing up always talks about powering through and perseverance and never give up and stamina and, you know, all these athletes talk about, you know, no days off. You know, it's okay to take a fucking day off. (laughs) And I actually think it's that day off that allows you to do this seven-year journey. It's just such a, it's a huge thing that I would have went back and told my 18-year-old self because it took a lot of years of burnout for me to realize it doesn't have to be a painful process. It's okay to take a Sunday off. It's okay to go home at 5 p.m. and watch a couple hours of TV if you've had a really hard day. 
Because what's more important than you burning the midnight oil every night is that you actually stay through the journey all the way to the end. And I think the problem with a lot of young entrepreneurs, people who are similar to myself in the sense that they want to give it their all, is they make this mistake of thinking, because it's the mistake I made in the beginning, that you have to be working 100 miles an hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for you to achieve your goal. And what I've realized is that taking a little bit of time to be kind to yourself not only makes the journey more enjoyable, but it actually helps you complete it. Do you think you learned more from your experience going through the mud or the actual wisdom that was passed on by this cast of incredible characters, the most, some of the most successful people on the planet? You know, it's like asking, and it's a good question, and I think about it a lot. It's like asking what's more important, the flower or the mud that it's rooted in. And to me, they're inseparable. When I went to Quincy Jones, he gave me advice that changed my life. But if I didn't spend the past, you know, five years getting rejected and making tons of mistakes and beating myself up and crawling through the mud, the Quincy Jones advice wouldn't have meant anything to me. Yeah, that's a great point, which... They, they inter-are. You can't separate. And again, it's one of those things I never would have known when I started my journey, that the advice Bill Gates gives me, if it was just written as a magazine Q&A, it would be a good magazine Q&A. But what makes it shine, what makes the Lady Gaga chapter shine, what makes the Steve Wozniak chapter shine is that it's planted in this mud, which is the seven-year journey of an 18-year-old without any experience trying to track them down and getting beat up the whole way through. So very quickly, if you could distill this into little vitamins, uh, what did you learn from Bill Gates? What did he teach me or what did I learn? What did he teach you? One of the most surprising things he taught me is that I went in assuming he had this secret to negotiating because, you know, he had negotiated his way into many times billion-dollar deals that some of the biggest companies didn't know they were giving him, you know, the winnings. One of the most surprising things I learned from Bill Gates is I kept pressing him on how to... You know, how do you deal with the people you're negotiating with? What are your three negotiating checklists? What's your this? What's your that? And I was looking for these like BuzzFeed answers, you know, one, two, three, four, five. And he just kept trying to tell me, essentially, the best thing when you're young and just starting out when you're trying to negotiate is don't try to negotiate. Let the person take you under their wing. Let them... Ask them for their advice. Ask them for their book recommendations. Get them to invest in you. Because then, when you're making the deal, there is no negotiation. They want to help you. And that was the last thing I thought, you know, the world's richest man would be telling me. 
And what's great about the Bill Gates chapter is there's like a dozen of those great pieces of advice. But the chapter actually has a much more profound takeaway, which only makes sense in the context of the journey. Who of all the people that you interviewed, maybe this unfair question, because it may be almost like when you have kids and you're asked, like, who's your favorite kid? And There's I, always an answer to that. And I used to always <laughs> tell my mom, I can't wait till I become a parent and I can find out the truth. <laughs> There's always the favorite kid. Is is there, among all the f- successful people that you interviewed for this book, is there one that stands out to you that offered you something that you couldn't have got from anyone else, and then when you got it, you were instantly changed? The person who... Ooh, I had an answer, but right I was about to say it, another came into my head. I think, I'm, I, think I know who you're going to say, but go ahead. All right, can you... Th- okay, this is... Let's test Cal about how close we are. Can you think about who the first person I was going to say, what the obvious answer was of who changed me the most, and then what was the subconscious reaching out and saying, wait a minute, there's another answer. So when I think of the answer to that question, the obvious answer, the answer that you were first going to say would be Quincy Jones. Bingo! All right, ladies and gentlemen, he's one for one. He's coming up for the second shot. Let's see if he sinks it. That message was uh, to cherish your mistakes, and you just made a whole bookload of them. And so (laughs) you get to the end, and... And he says, cherish your mistakes because that's what's going to move you forward. And my second choice. He's up at the he's up at the three-point line. That's right. Here no defenders around him. <laughs> and no, they're swarming all over me because there's there's a lot of competition. But I'm gonna say Jessica Alba. Off the rim. <laughs> it goes into the crowd. <laughs> Okay, Cal ahead. Fussman walks away with his towel over his head into the locker room. <laughs> we'll be right back, ladies and gentlemen, with the second half of the game. Okay, you tell me why who who you think is the proper answer, and then I'll tell you why I said Jessica Alba. Um, it was a person who sometimes I I'm not sure if he counts as a official interview or as a character in the book, and it's Elliot Bisno. And yeah, oh my God. Ah, now that I'm thinking about it, ah, he wins by a factor of a thousand. And p- people probably think I'm using hyperbole. Right, but, but most people at, wouldn't know who Elliot Biznow is. Right, and that's and, the thing. And you he, had no idea who Elliot Biznow was right. when you started writing so, the you list. You know, Quincy Jones and Jessica right. Alba are obvious I'm, answers I'm because, they're on inter- the list. because they were interview subjects. Right, right. So, yeah, if we're going to focus on people on the list, it's right. I think Quincy Jones definitely did change but, me the most. But you should you should definitely talk about what Elliot Biznow did for your life and explain who Elliot is and how you met him because this also gets back to mentoring. This is the biggest story of mentoring. So about a year into the journey, I had finally reached what I thought was, you know, the promised land. My phone was ringing and there was a Seattle area code and I picked up the phone and on the line was Bill Gates' chief of staff. And, you know, I spent a whole year trying to get to this point. 
<clears throat> and the fact that he was calling me, I felt I was 95% there on my journey to get to Bill Gates. And he goes, so, you want to interview Bill, huh? And, you know, he couldn't have been nicer, and I start explaining to him about the book, and he goes, look, I know all about it, no need to explain. And, you know, I, I, I am adamant now, I'm 95% there. And he goes, well, Alex... I love that you're doing this to help your generation. I love that you're doing this for others. But the thing is, you're about 5% there. (laughs) And of course, my entire world deflates. And he goes on to tell me that, to my surprise, Bill doesn't normally do interviews with (laughs) 18-year-olds. And he goes, look, you need to go get a publishing deal from, you know, either Penguin or Random House. And you need to go build more momentum. And when you do, call me back. Click. He hangs up. And I'm thinking, momentum? If he says I'm 5% there after spending a year working on this, you know, I'll be I'll be wearing dentures by the time this book is done. <laughs> and I go back to the storage closet and my head is in my hands and I'm just thinking like 5%. And like many times in life when you're just racking your brain, sometimes something very unexpected just like almost like a flash of I don't even want to say lightning because that's too obvious it's like a uh, like a very faint you know gust of wind just brushes past you and if you're lucky you notice it and you hold on to it and that gust of wind that was a thought of because I was thinking you know Bill Gates and Bill Clinton and Warren Buffett how am I going to get to these people and this thought came into my mind of wait didn't someone tell me Bill Clinton and Richard Branson were on some like cruise ship and I just, you know, Googled it on my phone, you know, Bill Clinton, Richard Branson cruise ship and this article pops up and I start reading this article and it says summit series takes to the high seas with Richard Branson and, you know, the roots as the band by the pool and Blake Mykoski and Gary Vaynerchuk and, you know, listing out all of these people who are like heroes to me and they're all going on this cruise ship and for three days and it's organized by serial entrepreneur Elliot Bisno, who is 26 years old. And I'm, I thought there was a typo because 26 is like my cousin's age. I thought you had to be like this big power broker to do something like this. So I Google Elliot Bisno and that Google search changed my life. So what comes up when you Google Elliot Bisno, at least at the time, was a series of articles and blog posts, but none of them really explain who he is. And I just spent hour after hour clicking and clicking and the sun's going down and I'm missing two meals without noticing. And I'm just deep into this rabbit hole of learning about this guy. But it's sort of like Googling the guy from Catch Me If You Can in the sense that, you know, there's a lot about him, but nothing really says who he is. And, you know, I'm looking at pictures of him in Nicaragua and Tel Aviv with supermodels and at the Tour de France and at the running of the Bulls and, you know, on stage with Bill Clinton and then in a, someone's living room with Bill Clinton. And then I read an article where he says his hero is Ted Turner and he dreams of meeting him one day. And then five minutes later, I find a picture of him and Ted Turner shaking hands at the United Nations. I'm like, who is this guy? And... You know, after hours, which turn into days of 
immersing myself into this almost mythical creature, the only thought in my mind is, you know, Bill Gates, the chief of staff, said, I need momentum to achieve this dream. And if there's anybody who has clearly figured that out, it's this guy, Elliot. And I had never done this before, but something took over and I closed my eyes and prayed. And I opened my journal and I wrote the words dream mentor across the top. And I drew a line under it. And on the first line I wrote Elliot Bisnell. So a couple weeks after that, I was supposed to be studying for an accounting final, but I couldn't stop thinking about this guy, Elliot Bisno. And I just, I was realizing that I really needed to study for finals for this accounting final. And every time I was daydreaming about Elliot Bisno was time I wasn't spending studying. So I was like, all right, I'm going to give myself five minutes to just write him an email so I can get it out of my head. And again, that five minutes turns into three hours of writing this really impassioned email. And I use, I had interviewed Tim Ferriss, um, a bit earlier for the book. So I used a cold email template that Tim taught me. And I use this cold email template. I write Ellie this email, putting in all these, you know, facts that I learned about him over all my time researching him. And I send him this email and almost immediately I get a response. Great email. What are you doing tomorrow? And or I was like, what are you doing Thursday? And I checked my calendar for the week. And of course, that was the day of my accounting final. So I responded the only way you can respond when your dream mentor emails you. I'm completely free. <laughs> what do you have in mind? He goes, great. Meet me at 8 a.m. at the Weston Hotel. And that was actually sort of perfect because my final wasn't until noon. The Weston Hotel wasn't you know, that far, it was about an hour away from my college campus. And I figured, you know, 15 minute meeting, I have loads of time to drive back for, for the final. So I show up to that Weston hotel and that 15 minute meeting turns into a four hour breakfast, which turns into traveling the world with him that summer, which turns into Elliot Bisno being not only my biggest mentor, but one of my best friends. And it's it's interesting because when I think back of all these connections, because you do that, you introduced me to Elliot. And from that point on, Elliot had an impact on my life because I was invited to Summit. And you actually facilitated me speaking there. And... After I spoke at Summit and got a standing ovation, my life was never the same. And I'd never been in front of a microphone before. And now here I am doing a podcast. So all of these connections uh, took not only you to a new place, but they took me to a new place. And I have a feeling that uh, everybody who reads the book is going to have that same feeling uh, because they're going to pick it up and they're going to learn something that's going to propel them to do something mm. that's going to take them to a new place. Mm, I love that. 
and I have no idea where my life is going, but I can guarantee you if we had not met, it would be in a very different place. And so ultimately, I have to thank you for crawling through the mud and going through the, all those rewrites. And at, while you were doing that, saying, what do you mean you have no Twitter account? What do you mean you have no Facebook page? Like, if you're not on the internet, you don't exist. You don't have Instagram. And so now I God, tweet. I sound like such a <laughs> teenager. <laughs> and to, to be fair, though, I wasn't saying, you know, you don't exist as a person. What I was saying, though, is, and I don't know if you know this, I only started saying that. I actually don't think I ever told you this. I only started saying that after you showed me drinking at 1,300 feet, which if anyone here is listening and has not read Cal's article called Drinking at 1,300 Feet, you can go to Esquire.com. It won the James Beard Award for one of the best essays, and it's one of the most beautiful articles you'll ever read. And when Cal showed me that article, I knew he was a best-selling author. I knew he wrote the What I Learned column. But when I read that, I realized this is better than anything that you'll find on Medium or Twitter or Facebook. It's just better than any of it. And the fact that it was sort of like buried in, or it was like lost in this abyss of the old publishing world. And it, was, it wasn't, you couldn't go to calfussman.com and right at the front you click drinking at 1,300 feet. It was lost. There was no calfussman.com. That's my point. <laughs> so I wasn't saying you don't exist as a person. I was right. saying your artistry that you have spent, you know, decades perfecting. It is a almost an injustice to the beauty of your art for it to just be in a storage box in an attic. It is injustice for me not to have a Twitter account. <laughs> I never thought I'd say those words, but when when all this moves forward, uh, I th I think that the third door which is going to be published in the beginning of June. June 5th. June 5th is going to have the chance to change a lot of people's lives. And so I encourage everybody to go out and get a copy. And in fact, this podcast will appear long before June 5th. Uh, and so by ordering, ordering a book now, you're actually uh, helping Alex get the momentum. Momentum is we a key it. word. We need all the help we can get. The, the momentum uh, that he's looking for to have this book reach. You know what? If anybody is listening to this and buys the book because of this, send it, because Cal loves his Twitter, send a tweet to Cal and, <laughs> I don't know, include me or I'll just check you know all the replies to Cal's Twitter and we can do something fun because it feels this was one of the most personal conversations I've had about the book. And anyone listening to this sort of feels like family. So we can figure out something fun to do for all the big question listeners. 
And you never I'll call Kevin the like, manager. Okay, so we're gonna wrap up. By... KTM is what we call him uh, on the streets. <laughs> and I, I will just uh, wrap up by explaining that uh, Kevin, the manager, and Alex uh, have been best friends for many, many years. And so eighty years. <laughs> and so after Alex met. Elliot and introduced me to the world of Summit. And after I spoke, uh, at that point, I had also, uh, through Alex, met Kevin. And then at my parents' house for dinner. Yeah. And, and so all these steps just kept on coming up uh, before us. And we just kept on stepping. And now I find my life in a completely different place which I have you to thank for. And trust me, anyone who reads this book may find their life in a new place. So I encourage everybody to go out and get the third door. And I have a feeling this is not the last time we'll be speaking on this podcast, Alex. Thank you, man. I love you. Love you too. Cheers. If you're moving through Act 1 of your life, like young Alex, and starting a business adventure, you can go to Squarespace. And if you're just starting Act 3 of your life, like me, you can go on your next adventure with Squarespace too. Squarespace is for anyone who's thinking creatively. You'll get a unique and beautiful website. And if you go to squarespace.com, and type in the offer code Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, your domain name or website will get a 10% discount. So go to Squarespace right now. And if you need to make a hire in your business, well, you probably don't need me to remind you to head straight to ZipRecruiter. All you need to do is type in the job description, make a single click, and voila! Within 24 hours, you will have qualified candidates in your inbox. I've talked to so many people who swear by ZipRecruiter. So go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman for a free trial and see what I'm talking about. Time to wrap up with some thank yous. First, as always, want to show some gratitude to Tim Ferriss, who long ago suggested I start a podcast and pushed and pushed and pushed until I did. And now I'm so happy I finally followed his advice. Also want to thank Alex Benayan for coming on the podcast. If you want to reach out to Alex, do so through Instagram or Twitter at at Alex Banayan, B-A-N-A-Y-A-N. One more thank you goes to Kevin, the manager, who keeps things running smooth. We'll see you next week. The party is just getting started. <laughs>